Hello and welcome to the BS History Podcast. My name is BS Dreyer and whether or not those initials are fitting, I'll let you judge. Uh, today's episode is all based uh, on a great book that I read. So I read an interesting account on Korean modern history by Charles K. Armstrong about all Koreans in both states, both North and South Korea, uh, on the Korean peninsula. Uh, and the book is also about Korean uh, diaspora abroad. Um, and, you know, reading it, I realized how little I really knew of North Korean history. Uh, South Korea's history, I was quite aware of um, and sort of the the Korean diaspora well when I say Koreans I mean what both North and South Korea refers to as their countrymen so not necessarily that these people of Korean uh, you know ancestry identify as Korean uh, I imagine a lot of them uh, particularly in the United States identify more as Korean Americans Uh, There are a few surprising things about the Korean diaspora I did not know. One of them is that uh, a large number of Koreans live in uh, what is today uh, mostly Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, I believe. Um, But, you know, former USSR, uh, now independent republics, uh, and they were moved there uh, because they were at one time settled in what was first Imperial Russia and then became uh, Communist Russia. And uh, they were moved, uh, you know, during um, the communist years of of Russia, of the USSR. And um, many of those still live today. They're they're like fifth or sixth generation. It's interesting that whole process has happened and many people don't know of it uh, because it's not not a big story uh, anywhere. Uh, and they don't really have any media impact the same way that Korean Americans have had, you know, with actors, etc. But uh, and you know, there, there are others there just across the border from North Korea. There's, uh, you know, in that Chinese province, there's a lot of uh, descendants of Korean uh, immigrants. That's a bit more recent. There are many, many uh, in Japan uh, descendants. Many of them now naturalized Japanese citizens. Um, sort of distancing themselves from their Korean heritage because of discrimination in Japan. And and that's also a really fascinating story and a really fascinating facet of uh, the modern history of Korea. But what really struck me was the North Korean history. Now, in the West, uh, many are baffled that, you know, dictator after dictator in the same family manages to keep this uh, impoverished and to many outside eyes basically failing state propped up Um, and we tend to look to China when it comes to North Korea's continued existence and while the Chinese are a huge part of uh, the answer to why North Korea is still a country and is still alive and well relatively speaking it is far from the whole story. And so today the topic is the North Korean story from model communist state to economic catastrophe and the story of Juche or Chuche or something similar to that. I apologize to any and all who actually speak Korean. My pronunciation as always is uh, not necessarily great when it comes to any other language than uh, English and even then sometimes not so much. 
Now, before World War II, there had never been a North and a South Korea as we understand it today. There had been different Korean kingdoms and empires, at times fighting with each other, at times fighting the outside world or defending against the outside world, outside incursion. Um, but never a clear division between a North and a South. And um, throughout Korean history, they've managed to, while being in the sort of cultural sphere and influence of China, to remain relatively their own, their own people, their own language, uh, sort of independent-ish. Um, and um, that very much is a thing that carries on over to modern-day North Korean sort of self-understanding, uh, how they understand themselves as sort of the true the true spirit of Korea in, in a nationalistic sense, that they are self-reliant and take care of themselves. And that is precisely the meaning behind the word Juche uh, or Juche or however you want to pronounce that. I'm, I'm going to settle on Juche. It's spelled, by the way, in the North Korean Latinization anyways, as uh, J-U-C-H-E. But it sounds a lot more like a C-H sound, uh, to my ears anyways. So, North Korea becomes a country only after the Second World War. And it becomes a country as a direct result of the burgeoning Cold War. Now, Korea was, after the Second World War, having been, you know, taken from the Japanese, it had been divided much like Germany between the Western liberal sort of capitalist forces and the communist forces on the other side, the Soviet Union in the north and the United States in the south. Both powers there initially sort of as occupiers to a certain extent, but also ultimately and to a very large degree perceived as liberators. And South Koreans and North Koreans alike had for a very long time been fighting for, you know, independence. And as I said before, there were no South and North Korea. So the kind of independence fight that you had been involved in uh, would sort of determine what country you would eventually try and move to and align yourself with if you were outside of the Korean Peninsula at the time or indeed within it. So uh, as an example, uh, Kim Il-sung had been fighting with the Chinese Communist Party as had so many other Korean communists, no matter what part of the country they were from. And so they returned and they settled in the north. And uh, sort of similarly, the um, the more uh, liberal-minded, capitalist-minded, uh, and indeed to some extent the collaborators with the Japanese who had colonized uh, Korea in uh, 1910. Now, those people tended to uh, eventually align themselves with the South and uh, attempt to get into the South. Uh, among them are also Christians, uh, which is not an insignificant part of the uh, even modern-day Korean population. There are more Christians in Korea than I think a lot of people realize. So, at any rate, North Korea was no typical Soviet satellite, even though it had been occupied by the Soviet forces following the fall of the Japanese Empire. 
uh, even in its beginning it was not a typical soviet satellite uh, in the sense that uh, and because of many of the communist koreans who would become the leaders of the so-called democratic people's republic of korea which is the official name of north korea they had been volunteers in the chinese communist forces and so they had a connection there to their chinese neighbors and they had been fighting as i mentioned against the japanese both before and indeed during the second world war mostly with the uh, stated goal of an independent um, communist korea uh, that those were the communists uh, the korean communists fighting for the chinese communist uh, forces that was their dream this has already put north korea in both a powerful and sort of precarious position uh, to a certain extent they were sort of wedged between these two communist giants the USSR and China and um, they had connections both ways for different reasons but uh, connections nonetheless of course the Korean War soon after the establishment of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea the war in 1950 and the Republic having been uh, established two years prior to that to uh, so in 1948 the Korean War became in a roundabout sort of way an opportunity in fact for the new regime under Kim Il-sung Kim Il-sung of course being the grandfather of the current leader Kim Jong-un and being the first leader of North Korea so although the North had been devastated by the US Air Force basically carpet bombing the place it was also a time when many thousands of non-communists and dissidents especially Christians fled south or were quietly dispatched in the confusion of the war Kim Il-sung and his allies consolidated their position within the party in the chaos of the war and emerged strengthened as a result um, this euphemistically named strengthening of social cohesion uh, happened both during and after the war with accusations of wartime collusion with the South and the US in the post-war period being an excuse to root out any and all subversives um, subversives as seen by the establishment uh, Communist Party Kim Il-sung and his allies and by 1958 Kim Il-sung well he pretty much uh, reigned supreme uh, truly supreme the war would also demonstrate the power of a communist economy because although North Korea had been devastated the northern part of the peninsula is by far the richest in natural resources and the north was the region where the Japanese occupation had you know invested the most money and development into developing heavy industries before the second world war so uh, those factories were uh, still there and they were rebuilt in record time thus uh, pretty much ensuring that north korea could carry on its um, heavy industries and export that heavy industry to the rest of the communist world and with economic support from the Soviet Union 
and with help from Chinese workers, uh, you know, they were able to really recover remarkably fast. Uh, regarding the Chinese, it's important uh, to m mention that the Chinese contribution of soldiers during the Korean War uh, largely was the intervention that was necessary for the North Koreans to stall the US and South Korean forces and ensure that taking the North uh, would have been too expensive and difficult and costly for the uh, US and the South Koreans and thus pretty much ensuring the North Korean survival. And uh, that bond coupled with the fact that so many Korean communists had fought for the Chinese communist forces in China against the Japanese and then to some extent also later against the Chinese uh, nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek. Well, they, they had a, what they themselves call a blood bond or a friendship forged in blood. Um, so uh, that factor is, is important and it helps to explain the connection that still to this day persists between the communist China and the communist North Korea, although arguably China has become more of a quasi-communist capitalist state, uh, but still uh, this historical bond persists and at the time was really deeply felt. Now from 1958 at this point when Kim Il-sung has consolidated his power and forwards is when the term Chuche really comes into play. I mentioned the word in the beginning, but uh, Juche in simplified terms basically amounts to a philosophy of self-reliance that the North Korean regime had propagandized since the end of the Korean War. And as a contrast to the South's sort of obvious reliance on the US, the North Koreans promoted their country as a self-sufficient, nationalist, communist state. That's not too dissimilar from the Chinese or indeed the Vietnamese version of their own national histories, but and indeed exactly like those countries, the truth is that North Korea took assistance from its giant neighbors, the Chinese, in largely in the form of labor, and the USSR in economic assistance and technological assistance and uh, you know being able to send their people to the USSR to get uh, qualifications in all subjects and education and everything else. So uh, at the end of the day, although North Korea did manage to turn its economy around in record time largely on its own merits, it, it really was also supported by many communist states. It then also very quickly becomes able to support other communist states as a result of the quick economic turnaround. Vietnam is an important example here, where the South Koreans, interestingly enough, sent soldiers to the South Vietnamese. Uh, the North Koreans supported the uh, Vietnamese communists with actual weaponry and with um, their industrial capabilities and the South at this point, South Korea was unable to do that for the uh, Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese. And um, that sort of puts into uh, light and into perspective 
the kind of discrepancy that at this time period in time in you know the late 60s early 70s was between north korea and south korea north korea was the richer country uh, on paper uh, in real life by any measure so these two achievements the quick economic turnaround from the korean war and the ability to be able to suddenly turn around and support other communist states um, basically meant that uh, the North Koreans had a massive source of national pride that they could leverage against the South Koreans. And um, it really helped to consolidate Kim Il-sung's power. In the 60s and 70s, Juche and the geographical circumstance that allowed the North Koreans to have the heavy industry that they had and to some extent still have uh, and uh, so forth was not the exclusive explanation for North Korean success. As a result in those years of the growing disagreements between the two communist giants, China and the USSR, uh, which really developed throughout the Cold War, uh, North Korea was able to balance between the two and receive a lot of support from both as the two larger countries were really loath to potentially lose their influence to the other large country. This balancing act uh, of course had its ebbs and flows. At times North Korea was more clearly aligned towards sort of the Soviet vision and at other times it was more clearly aligned towards the Chinese vision of uh, world communism. But uh, at the end of the day, the net result was certainly a great benefit to the North Korean regime. It was able to achieve a level of support from both countries that pretty much no other communist state uh, was ever able to um, manage. Now China in the 70s, because of its issues with the USSR, famously opened up to the US. Uh, much to the chagrin of much of the communist world, North Korea not least. But unlike the Vietnamese, the North Koreans didn't align wholly with the Soviets and disavowed the Chinese as a result of this sort of opening up to the US that the Chinese did. The bond between the two countries at the time, about 50 years old, did not break. But the uh, relationship definitely hit a low point as a result of the uh, Chinese-US relations. But all in all, the first 25 years or so of the North Korean experiment or experience, uh, I should say, was largely positive. In fact, hugely positive. Uh, it had been pretty much nothing but a success. And the 80s roll around. And North Korea is, uh, or becomes rather, I should say, no longer quite the success story that it had been. Kim Jong-il, the son of Kim Il-sung, becomes heir apparent. And the propaganda machine functions impeccably, but it is not the only things that happen and have consequence for North Korea during the 1980s. Now, first off, Kim Jong-il as the heir apparent is not a popular choice among North Korea's communist allies, but the reasoning behind 
that he is the only one who represents total loyalty to Kim Il-sung. He is the closest uh, adherence to the uh, ideas of Kim Il-sung, as well as youth and intelligence, you know, held sway in North Korea. And uh, thus, basically, co- dynastic uh, communism, in and of itself a paradox, becomes reality. And I have a little doubt that had Mao Zedong or Ho Chi Minh had a similarly competent and charismatic family member or son, those countries, China and Vietnam, might have gone down the same path. Indeed, Cuba is another example of this, in a way at least, with Fidel Castro's brother Raul taking the reins after the death of the former, a sort of communist nepotism really. However, although succession and the possible associated unrest was no longer an issue for North Korea, the impending trouble do start to show. South Korea begins to overtake the North in GDP, in overall wealth, even in production. And South Korean tech and shipping, in particular, start to let South Korea contribute to the overall capitalist world economy, which would eventually lead to South Korea becoming the economic powerhouse that it is today. Um, But um, this capitalist expansion of South Korea and South Korean economy is fast growing during this decade, the 1980s. South Korean democracy also becomes a factor. Without going too much into detail about South Korean politics during this time, that might be a subject for a future podcast, South Korea had been basically a quasi-democratic military dictatorship since the end of World War II, along the lines of Singapore or even Chile. But the 1980s saw the rise of the democracy movement in South Korea, and the democracy movement, well, I say saw the rise, I mean the democracy movement really gained strength and became strong in South Korea, and South Korea remarkably peacefully joined the ranks of democratic states. This took away a big edge in the North Korean critiques of South Korea. No longer were the two states just two cases of self-proclaimed democracies who were anything but, but rather the two Koreas became extinct in yet another way. North Korea was no democracy, South Korea was a true democracy. As the 1990s come along, disaster strikes. Soviet collapse is the first, but arguably only the second worst thing that happens to the North Koreans during this decade. For obvious reasons, the Soviet collapse spells almost immediate doom for the North Korean economy. China, the other great ally, although nowhere near collapse, is still a decade away from being able to fully prop up the North Korean state through economic aid. And between 1994 and 1998, there are four years of disastrous famine. The North Korean system is evidently corrupt. The lack of aid and import from the Soviet Union has almost immediate consequences. Many in the West predict the end of North Korea. The situation looks completely unsustainable. 
The crisis, although felt from 1991 on, is exacerbated during those uh, years from 1994 to 1998 because of both floods and droughts. And as the death toll rises because of this famine, things look truly dire. The North Korean regime has one last ace up its sleeve, however. Soviet science and North Korean physicists trained in the Soviet Union means that the North Koreans have nuclear capability. As a result, even if the South Koreans or the United States might have contemplated military intervention during those years, the risks would have been huge. With their nuclear capability, North Korea staves off any military intervention and buys itself enough time for both for China to enter the world economy the way that it did, which enables China to support North Korea, but also for uh, North Korea to re-establish some connections to Russia where they are able to send workers in order to bring back funds to the North Korean uh, regime. And uh, basically, basically, this whole thing, um, the nuclear capability, becomes the lifeline that the North Korean regime clings to during the 1990s. In the 2000s, the Bush administration proclaims uh, North Korea to be a part of the so-called axis of evil. Uh, they call it a rogue nation. Uh, and this critique really, if anything, strengthens uh, the regime's position internally, at least, in, uh, in the North Korean nation. And now this country is slowly recovering from the famine. In many ways, the constant output of both South Korean but also largely U.S. critiques of the uh, North Korean regime and North Korea in general becomes a propaganda tool for the North Korean regime and a really effective one as well. Because however bad things are for the general North Korean population, there is a real fear that they are viewed as some sort of truly evil people by the outside world, by South Korea and by the United States. And so they are sort of kept in fear, really. Uh, fear of what would happen if the regime collapses. And there is really no greater thing to um, pacify a population than fear of what might happen if the status quo is in any way disrupted. This is very much the case both in the 1990s but certainly also in the 2000s. In the 2010s you see more slow recovery but um, still recovery of the situation of the North Korean uh, sort of general situation in terms of food. So even though uh, the black market which had been massively expanded during the uh, famine years is now a total uh, unavoidable facet uh, part of North Korean daily life, things are looking a lot better for the average North Korean. And with 
both the uh, nuclear capability threat and with China's support, North Korea can maintain a stable regime, even if it looked for a short second like there might be cracks in, uh, in the wall, so to speak. So when you look at North Korean history, you realize first of all how relatively recent it all is. Both modern-day Korean nations are really new nations. And because they are so relatively new and recent, the bad times that we associate with you know, being an average North Korean with hunger and starvation and labor camps, those are not the only experiences and memories of living North Koreans. The older generations undoubtedly remember and pass on the memories of the good times in, you know, the post-Korean War years and throughout the sort of economic recovery years where North Korea really was one of the most successful communist states on the planet. And um, the, that older generation, uh, and to a large extent I imagine the younger generation having heard from the older generation what was the past, well they all fear that a regime collapse in North Korea could result in even worse times in the future the deplorable living conditions for the vast majority of the North Korean people are well documented uh, but they are not static they exist in a flux and the power of fear has been utilized with brutal efficiency by the state media and the propaganda machine in North Korea the North Korean memory of the uh, Korean War is one of victimhood as well uh, although they were the aggressors. The US is still the great enemy and any observer who believes that Kim Jong-un has any intention of destabilizing his family's image by clear cooperation with the US I would suggest should look at North Korean history. The philosophy of Chuche is alive and well although not quite as well as it was 50 years ago and today that philosophy of Chuche relies largely on the capability to wage nuclear war but at any rate North Korea still and North Koreans still have a perception of themselves as relatively speaking anyways self-reliant and you know good enough good enough within themselves for themselves and I think that's a factor that really shouldn't be discounted. Now, North Korea today still relies on external food imports from China, but paradoxically also receiving aid from South Korea, the US and Japan. So Chuche is in a sense dead, but the illusion of Chuche is maintained. It is a truly unhealthy balance where enemies periodically assist the regime to avoid a hunger catastrophe, uh, partly humanitarian in its motivation. The motivation is also the simple logic that a sudden collapse of the North Korean state, particularly for South Korea, would be hugely 
problematic. When and if North Korea will have a change in regime is incredibly hard to predict, and it is certainly not the job of any historian, much less me. Although my guess would be that if China, with its own mounting problem of an aging population, faces severe difficulty as a result of that, then North Korea might become a thing of the past sometime within our lifetimes. But um, for the North Korean regime, we can say safely, so far, so good, or <laughs> so far, so bad, if uh, you would rather. But at any rate, so far, so still existing, and uh, probably will still be existing for a while. When you look at North Korean history even a little more closely, it becomes really obvious that the frequent bafflement in Western media over how the North Korean nation is still alive is simply lack of historical awareness. So you can feel free to sigh deeply the next time some political commentator completely fails to grasp the complexity of North Korea's past and present. Well, as always, I hope you think that today's podcast was more history than BS. You can find me on Twitter at BS History Pod. That's at BS History Pod. And last but not least, I want to thank you for listening. <laughs>